it's all about that mental toughness and that figuring out get a, having a plan and not letting yourself be your biggest limiter because if you get in your own head, then you not only do a disservice for yourself, but then you also do a disservice for people that are trying to draw inspiration from you because you have an obligation to give back to the community. Welcome to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. I am your host, Dr. Weta L. Brown. I inspire and promote movement. I explain how running adds to life from a mental wholeness aspect, how obstacles can be overcome in life to make it to your finish line. Welcome to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy, episode 39. Today, I welcome a friend and a fellow triathlete, James Cromlin. He is also a well-known Nashville employment lawyer. His legal counsel is regularly sought out by management on issues arising from employment relationships. James' experience includes union and non-union arbitration in all forms of employment discrimination litigation. In addition, he conducts in-house training sessions on compliance with numerous federal and state law affected employers. From the Americans with Disability Act to the Fair Labor Standard Act to occupational health. Jan concentrates his practice in the area of labor and employment law, business and corporate law, litigation and dispute resolution, and entertainment and media law. He is an active member in the Nashville community. He is committed to providing excellent legal representation for all his clients. In the area of entertainment and media, he represents artists, songwriters, authors, managers, and producers in the production, ownership, marketing, and sales of creative works. He also represents television anchors, reporters, and contract negotiation with local and national media outlets. From 1997 to 1998, he served as a judicial clerk to retired United States Chief District Judge William J. Haynes for the Middle District of Tennessee. Encouraged by his mother and following in his father's footsteps, James says he always wanted to be a lawyer for as long as he can remember. What he enjoyed most about the profession is helping employers resolve their employee issues and assisting small businesses in maximizing their potential by focusing on the bottom line and not legal problems. One of his proudest moments in his life was accepting the National Bar Association induction of his father into his Hall of Fame. He has received numerous awards. Some of them include, in 2016, he received the Justice A.A. Birch Outstanding Service Award, Mid-South Super Lawyers, 40 Under 40 Nashville Business Journal, Young Leader of the Year, Young Leaders Council in 2010, Best of the Bar, Nashville Business Journal, 2009. James is very active in the Nashville community and has a passion for nonprofits. Among the organizations he has been involved with are Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Middle Tennessee, Matthew Walker Comprehensive Health Center, and Kelly Miller Smith Center Against Abusive Behavior. He is an active member of the Mount Zion Baptist Church. James serves as a trustee and was instrumental in the Project 2000 Committee, which oversaw the construction of the church's $17 million facility. In his spare time, James is a triathlete and a runner. He has completed eight full Ironman distance races, seven 
half Ironman, 70.3 races, five marathons, and 20 plus half marathons. He is also the founder of the State Capital Workout, which takes place on Monday and Thursday evening. Well, used to prior to COVID. Now he does the workouts on his steps via social media platforms. Prior to COVID, he used to lead hundreds of people. They would come out to run, sweat, and exercise. He led this after a long, hard day in the office. He started the state capital workouts because he wanted to see people healthier or on a path to get healthier. He is somewhat of a national celebrity for his ability to motivate people to endure excruciating workouts involving long runs, uphill sprints, and hundreds of lunges. James lost his mother in 2002 and began running in her honor. It started with half marathons and has escalated to what we see today. I met James when I completed my first Ironman full distance triathlon in Louisville, Kentucky. He was there with his Nashville crew. I found him to be so motivational and just loved his overall spirit. Please welcome James Crumbling. You've done so much work professionally and for the community. Where did you get your drive and determination from? First of all, let me say I'm very happy to be a part of this this evening. I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, speak to you. Uh, it's been uh, awesome kind of getting to know you throughout the whole triathlon Ironman journey. I drew inspiration from my parents. They were salt of the earth. I'm sure everybody feels that way about their parents, but I truly believe that mine were the salt of the earth. My father was a lawyer in Louisville, Kentucky, did civil rights law, criminal law. He filed the uh, lawsuit to desegregate the University of Kentucky, as well as the University of Louisville Middle School. Was a, was a school teacher. So yeah, she taught elementary school for 40 plus years, 42 years actually. And so between the two of them, I drew inspiration about always trying to be involved. Uh, they set a really good nurturing background for me to kind of make sure that you do everything that you need to do to be the best that you could be at whatever task that you undertake. So they were truly my inspiration. So did your father motivate you to pursue a present career? Yeah, he was one of the motivating factors for sure. Being a lawyer, I would always ask him uh, about certain situations and about certain things, especially when I went to law school. But growing up, um, he was definitely a leader or a mentor in that area. I was also involved in state youth and government program, mm -hmm. the YMCA of Kentucky. And through that program, uh, I became lieutenant governor when I was in middle school, the middle school program, and then governor of the entire state for the high school program. And kind of knew for, from a very early age that I wanted to be a lawyer, um, but getting involved in that beginning in the eighth grade, I believe, really kind of cemented that for me. So do you ever think about a career in politics from your tenant governor experience? You know, I, I thought about politics and not going to say never, but for now it's, it's just something that um, I'd rather support those that, that need to be supported and kind of be behind the scenes and kind of help, help get certain causes heard and people elected in, in that fashion. Thurgood Marshall filed the lawsuit, or Justice Thurgood Marshall, late Justice Thurgood Marshall, filed the lawsuit, and they were both lawyers with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and Lyman T. Johnson, who was the lead plaintiff, you know, was, was the lead plaintiff in that matter, and they filed the lawsuit, and ultimately one took the case all the way to the Supreme Court um, to desegregate the University of Kentucky. That's impressive. Let me think about the movie, Marshall. Oh, I love that movie. The movie Marshall was great. And I, and I remember growing up, too, we would always, you know, he used to take me to, when I was little, before I could obviously go to school, he would take me to see some of his cases and some of the courtroom and some of his trials and all that. I remember being in a small, small town in Kentucky where a black man was on trial for, for the 
alleged rape of a white woman. And back then, and even today, I mean, obviously rape is definitely bad. It should never be done. But, you know, for a black man to be on trial in rural, rural Kentucky, that just, that didn't, you know, the things didn't look good for that, for that particular guy. And uh, I remember being in the courtroom and, uh, it was at the end of the trial. I could have been no more than four or five. And I remember waking up and I, I guess it was at the right moment. Mm-hmm. I said, Daddy, did we win? Courtroom was completely silent. Of course, I didn't know what I was doing, but, uh, courtroom broke out in laughter and, uh, we did win. I remember one of the very first conversations that we had that I ever had with him about race and racial injustice happened that day. Um, because I thought it was so cool when we left the courthouse, we had a police escort back to the highway. And I didn't realize that back then civil rights lawyers got police escorts to the highways, or at least, you know, from the small towns, the county courthouse or what have you in these small towns all the way to the highway, just to make sure that nothing happened. We got on the highway. I remember my dad kind of telling me about why what was going on in that moment on, I mean, I had a ton of questions. <laughs> was it a question that I didn't ask? And so I had a ton of questions and learned about the, the birds and the bees of civil rights, so to speak. It's interesting because Marshall is based on a movie about a suspected rape, kind of parallels your experience. Tell me about the time that you accepted the induction of your father into the National Bar Association Hall of Fame. Ah, we did a deep here. <laughs> Probably um, one of the proudest moments that I can say that I've had in doing something for my father. He, he had um, done a lot and was being recognized by the National Bar Association. We actually thought that it was going to be the year before. So we had, and he was living it. So we all went down and he was there to accept, et cetera, et cetera. But it didn't happen that year. I'm not quite sure what happened. I guess there was a miscommunication between, I guess, between him and the NBA or what have you, but it didn't happen that year. And then, unfortunately, when he received the award the very next year, he passed. All of us went down again, of course, Sam's him, and I got the opportunity, had the opportunity to accept the award on his behalf. it was really cool to, uh, to meet some of the people that he, some of his colleagues that he had known for years and just some of the folks that knew a lot about his career and a lot of things that he had done just to accept that award. And, you know, a lot of our family members had come down too. So it was, it was a very, very, uh, gratifying experience and I was very proud. Born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky and got to Nashville. Because I went to Vanderbilt, I went to Vanderbilt for college and for law school. So after that, uh, ended up staying here in Nashville and have been here since the fall of 1990. Did you play any sports growing up? I did. So growing up, I played basketball, football, loved baseball, ran track, all of that stuff. What did you run track? What um, events? I ran the hurdles. Oh, okay, okay. In high school, so that was fun. Any sports in college? Uh, no sports in college. I'm just intramurals, flag football, intramural basketball, softball, what have you. I started running seriously after the passing of my mother, and I noticed that you started running after your mom passed in 2002 in our honor. Yeah, man, you have done your research. Yes, so <laughs> I thought lawyers did a lot of research. <laughs> You're over killing it, Doc. Uh, so, yeah, so my mother passed in, in 2002. In fact, uh, her birthday's in February coming up, and the day that she passed is shortly, about a week after her birthday. But, yeah, so I started running and ran the Country Music Half Marathon in 2003 in her honor. And then I, I ran that event uh, every year all the way up until recently. I didn't run it in 2012. I'm sorry, 2010, because it was so hot outside and, six in the morning. I knew that was going to be an absolutely horrible day, but that's really what kind of propelled me and got me running was to run the Country Music Half Marathon in 2003. So how did you start? Did you just say, put on a plane and start running? Are we doing smaller races? 
And I, I didn't do any small, I don't think I did any small races to prepare for that race. And I had done smaller races before, like a 5K or a 10K, but that was, I may even think that was, I think my first race was the half marathon. Really? So you just jumped into the half marathon? Yeah, just go, go big or go home. Kind of like I did with Iron Man. But yeah, so I think that was my first race. And then after that, I did some, some 10Ks and 5Ks and, Things like that. Yeah, I believe that was my first one. So, how was your first race? How was the experience of racing? Uh, 03, from what I remember, it was good. It was good. It was gratifying because it was something that I had never done before. Usually, when for me, if I set my mind to something, then I find myself and figure out a way to get it done. I always have a plan. I always make sure that, uh, you know, I have people around me that support and encourage me. I even draw from the naysayers. I love naysayers because they motivate me even more. Just the way to get me to do something is telling me that I can't do it. Did you train with a group or did you do things on your own? Um, for that race, I did things on my own. For O three race, I did things on my own. Then I, you know, I ran afterwards, but I didn't really, didn't really train like I probably should have until I, I had a friend of mine in 2012. She basically told me, she said, Hey, look, let's, uh, let's run the capital steps, which are here in Nashville. She's like, Hey, let's run the capital steps to prepare for the upcoming country music half because I noticed that you really don't train. So before I would start like a month, six weeks out and then go do the race. And so, you know, no matter what happens, I did the race, but we started training. I want to say back when it was really cold. So it had to be January. We ran up and down the steps at the Capitol and all that other stuff. And I had my fastest time up until that point going through that training. I lost a bunch of weight doing that. Did that. And the next thing you know, three of my friends were like, Hey, we see what you're doing. She ended up moving away with her uh, job and fiance or boyfriend or what have you. You know, three of my friends were like, Hey, we saw what you did. So we want to do it too. And then third Saturday in, in May, next thing you know, third Thursday, sorry, third Thursday in May of 2012, we started the Capital Steps workout. We didn't know what we were doing then, but we just kind of went out there, a group of friends and did the workout. And they were like, man, this was cool. Let's, uh, let's invite some other people. And next thing you know, we're, we're going strong, uh, eight years, almost nine years now. So tell me about the Capital Steps program. Yeah, so basically it's um it's a bodyweight workout. We run up and down the steps, we run up and down the hills, and it's uh we run up and down, up and down the steps at the Capitol. And we're just all over the Capitol, downtown Nashville, Tennessee State Capitol. And it's um a really unique group. Thoroughly enjoyed doing it. Obviously we met in person until the pandemic hit, they were uh, suspended in-person activities, but we still do it online on, on Instagram, on my Instagram every Monday and Thursday at 6 p.m. But it was just really a group of friends, just a grassroots type thing where like-minded individuals wanted to get together to do something to make themselves feel better, to get healthier, uh, be better about fitness. So that's what, that's what really kind of inspired us all to kind of get, get involved in that. Email list grew from four people to however many hundreds, hundreds of people that it is today. And anybody can come, all different levels. Doesn't matter if you can run, if you can walk, or if you can run really fast. It's all about getting better. It's about the community. That's what it really represents for me. Is it an hour, or how long is the workout usually? Yeah, so the the workout is usually an hour. We start at six o'clock, and we'll end. Sometime right at seven, maybe a little bit after, depending on the uh, the length of the workout. They are always stay until till everybody leaves, till everybody can, finishes it. Uh, I'll go through whatever the list, whatever the workouts are going to be for that day, and it changes from day to day, uh, from session to session. And people do them. People do them at their own pace. There's nobody out there being that guy, that guy or that girl that. That's in your face. That's just saying, you know, you gotta do this. You wanna come on? I mean, I'm I'm out there shouting encouraging words, of course. And then the good thing about it is, everybody in the community that attends the workout, they're encouraging each other. Of course, you have some competitive folks out there, but but for the most part, everybody's encouraging. 
and you see somebody that's walking, you know, somebody who's normally a fast person that's walking up front, they'll slow down and or even walk with them to offer them words of encouragement. It's a really great, great thing that, that happened here in Nashville. So how did you go from half marathons to capital steps to completing in triathlons? Really good friend of mine, Daryl Freeman. He and I have been friends for a while and very fortunate and blessed to have him as a friend. He and I had a had a few bets for the full marathon. I mean we had a bet for the half marathon and, and I won that bet and then we had a bet for the full marathon and I won that bet. Well, what was the bet? Did you basically do it? Well the bet was uh who could be who could be the faster one. Oh, okay. <laughs> Win between the two of us. Okay, okay. Uh, who would finish first? Rather. Okay, so, so you won the half. I won the half, and then we uh, re-upped it, and then I won the full, and then uh, he and his buddy, <laughs> uh, he's, a good, he's a good friend of mine too, Aaron Mercer, we, we were all together, and they, they basically said, oh, you know, that little marathon that we did, you know, me and my buddy here, we do that at the, the end of what we do, because we're real men, we're real, because we're iron men. Okay. A lot of trash talk, things like that. And the next thing you know, I'm like, hey, sign me up. <laughs> sign me up. You're not going to say we were all at a, um, at a Titans game in his suite. And so there were all the people that worked with him. His family was there. And the young lady I was dating at the time was there and you know, looked at me like, you don't let him talk to you like that? I said, of course. <laughs> of course not. And so next thing you know, I didn't know how to swim. Couldn't swim. You couldn't swim? Couldn't swim. And so signed up for full Ironman in France. And uh, that was your first? That was my first triathlon. Learning how to swim. Took my first swim lesson January uh, of that year, 2015. And then five months later, I was swimming in the Mediterranean. Oh, my goodness. You know, they were very encouraging along the way. Both Daryl, Karen, and uh, Stephen Fowler Henry, we, the four of us, we did that race together and done several races since. They were very encouraging because none of them could swim either. Well, how did you learn to swim so fast, and especially in the sea? Because that's more difficult than a lake or. But God. <laughs> uh, I took uh, swim lessons at Nashville Aquatic Center. Matt Ashley Whitney. She was one of the ones that when she was, man, talk about the temperament to really help adult swimmers learn how to swim. She, man, she's the best. The swim lessons with her and I would constantly go back to knack and then I would swim on my own. So like, I think I swam five days a week. 3,000 meters, like your challenge. <laughs> I, uh, I definitely swam a lot and did a lot of drills and all that because I was scared, right? I mean, I, I'm not afraid to admit that. I mean, I almost drowned twice as a kid, so. I know that. What happened then? First time was I was at a pool with my, with my parents and you know, you go out and you, you tiptoe down to, to you can't tiptoe anymore. And I guess there was a drop. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I couldn't swim. So next thing I know, I feel his hand kind of help me up. Mm-hmm. Mother who was, who happened to be in the pool too. So she helped me out. That's, that's how I got out of that. The other time I was, you know, with some friends and, you know, probably doing things that I probably shouldn't be doing. And then I was still, when I say that, I'm, I'm thinking that I had no business going into the deep end. I mean, you weren't, of course, playing around. This is kind of going into the deep end. And then next thing you know, a total stranger kind of jumps in. <laughs> I had a real, real trepidation, real fear about that. So, um, it took a lot. My, I just remember my first time doing open water. Because, you know, I'm just swimming at the pool, right? So I'm thinking that everything is going to be good. I stuck my head in the water, and next thing you know, you can't see anything, right? That was my first time. And I was like, oh. <laughs> but, of course, but, of course, I, I stayed with it. And, uh, that's how I learned how to swim. I remember there was a day about two weeks before the trip. It was one of those things where it was a doer. Doer that? Do or die day. So I literally had to, uh, swim for like the 2.4 miles and we had arranged to have like a canoe, a young man in a canoe, a guy in a canoe next to me. 
the entire time that I was swimming in the lake. Uh, I remember that because it was during our normal Sunday morning swim practice, open water practice. And so I go off and uh, everybody else is kind of swimming in a little cove like we always do. And they're doing all the drills and all that stuff. And I'm gone. And I get back and a couple hours later or so. And Ashley comes out in the water and gives me this big hug and said, you made it, you did it, you're ready, and this, this, and that. And, you know, the three guys, they were sitting on the uh, on the bank at the picnic table kind of waiting on me, right? And, you know, when I got there, they had a, a celebratory libation for me, coffee and a little something in it. But um... <laughs> So it's interesting. I um, started taking swimming lessons in 17, 18. I took lessons as a child, but... They threw us in the pool and we made it to the shallow. But I was scared too. You sound just like me. You took lessons when I took lessons when I was a kid and it just didn't stick. So, um, what's your favorite part of racing? Running, triathlons? Like, what did you get out of it? Um, I like the challenge because you could do the same course every day and it would be different because you have the weather, you have what you ate. How you feel when you wake up that morning, your your energy level, your mental game that day, all of that plays an important part of how you perform during the race. And of course, whether or not you're hydrated, all of those are just so critical to how you perform on race day. You know, for me, my favorite part is a mental challenge. What is today going to bring? And how am I going to get through this day? Because I'm going to be prepared. I mean, I'm going to be physically prepared. I have done all the drills. I have done the long bike rides. I was swam from here to Finland and back by then and run, you know, climbed Everest on a bike, all that stuff. I'll and then run the entire Grand Canyon. So I say all that to say I'll be, I'll be ready. Prepared. Okay. Ready, uh, physical for it. It's just, it's always the mental part. Because you don't know what the day is going to be like. Whether or not you're going to have a flat, whether or not it's, the weather is going to be 90 degrees outside and you're going to be super dehydrated. So you have to start taking in stuff more to prepare yourself for it. Or if you're going, uh, it's going to be really cold and you have to layer up and you have to figure out, okay, well, when do I take this off? And when do I take that off? And when do I keep it on? So there's so many factors, but the reason why I keep doing it is because because of the mental aspect of it. I love the challenge. You gotta be able to first deal with yourself and kind of what you bring to the table and knowing that you have all these physical attributes that, that'll help you get through the race, whether or not your mental game is gonna be strong enough because, you know, what's gonna happen when you get tired? So when did you start coaching? So I've always done some aspect of coaching, whether it's uh, helping people work out in, in college. We had a trainer that did a lot of stuff, weight training in college and, and all that stuff. Shafonda Washington, he did all that stuff. And then um, after that, you know, then with the Capital Steps workout in 2012, kind of doing that, that type of coaching. Triathlon coaching came about I was sending a lot of folks to my coach. Uh, someone said to me, uh, well, why don't, why don't you try it? And so I was like, okay, I never positioned, <laughs> but, but sure, why not? So obviously with the help of my coach at the time and then another coach, um, who's all, we're all part of the umbrella group. And I ended up coaching that app, that, that particular athlete and she was successful. Okay. I got another request. And then another request, and then another request, and so it's been it's been very rewarding. I never thought that I would be in a position. I, I love giving back. I love seeing people achieve what they think that they couldn't achieve through fitness. Because you you always have these mental barriers. I'm always smiling and coaching people, uh, especially when I'm at the steps. I see people. I'm smiling a lot, even though people are really going through it. You know, because I can see the joy that's on the other side of their pain. Mm-hmm. So what that pain feels like, and I know what and how rewarding it's going to be for them. I get a lot of uh, satisfaction and gratification because I know that the hard work is going to pay off. And I love seeing people put in the hard work. It's just like with coaching folks in 
to do triathlons. I, you know, I've coached several people who were in the same position as me that didn't know how to swim. Mm-hmm. You know, you throw them in water, they're like, okay, if I can't stand up, I'm not doing it. <laughs> You're going to have to figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be able to stand up in a in a nice open body of water, <laughs> and so just to be able to have both, you know, the athletes just kind of go through my folks just kind of go through um, their own personal trials and tribulations with in training, and to be a part of that and actually help them get through it. Because a lot of them have the mental toughness; they just need that little bit of push and a little bit of encouragement that lets them know that everything is going to be all right. That's that's really kind of how I got involved with it. It's just me going through it, through it, and people seeing what I've done, and they say, "Hey, won't you help me out?" Season three, we will continue the new segment called "Ask the Dub." If you have any questions related to musculoskeletal injuries or musculoskeletal health, Go to my website, www.weouilife.com, click on the tab, voicemail, leave your voicemail, and select messages will be aired and answered on the segment. Now, back to the show. How did you come up with the name, Music That Moves? Yeah, I didn't come up with that name. Um, one of the other coaches did. Thad came up with that name, and he was, he's a part of the group. Sugarland, he music and movement, and so that's how it all kind of came about, Music That Moves. So what's the most rewarding and difficult aspect of coaching? The most rewarding aspect of coaching for me is to actually – develop a plan and see somebody achieve what they thought they couldn't do. With one of the three disciplines, somebody, if you coach somebody, they're they're weaker in one discipline than the other two. Or they're not good at any of them, and so you just got to help them through all of it. I love helping people who have the mental capacity and toughness to get through um, the training because it, it, it takes that to get through that. I mean, you have to be able to, you're not going to feel like training on all the days, every day. You're not going to feel like going to swim. There are going to be some days, especially when it gets cold in the winter, you're like, I am not getting in that pool and I am not getting my hair wet. I'm not taking a shower. I'm not coming out in that cold weather. Mm-hmm. You've got to figure out a way to, to, to get it done or. I'm not going to run on the treadmill today. I refuse to do it before I do the treadmill. Well, you may not want to run out if it's, if it's a torrential downpour. I have, but um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I just love, I, I just love seeing people, the smile on folks when they cross the finish line, when they realize that all the tough days, all the days that they hated me, deep down, I know they hate me. I know they're talking amongst themselves, you know, I, that, that Coach Crum, or, or to shorten my last name from Crum to Crum, that Coach Crum or, or James, you know, yada, yada, yada. Then on, on race day, when, when all the pieces of the puzzle come together, Tiffany, like, ah, thank you. The only variable on race day is the weather. That's my goal as a coach, is to prepare you for anything that comes up. If you have uh, nutrition issues, if you, if you have you know, mental, uh, trying to get develop that mental toughness for the dark stretches that you'll have on race day, the only variable that I, I want you, that you'll have to endure is the weather. You'll be ready for everything else. So has coaching changed your approach to training yourself? No. Because I still go through all of the things that it takes to, to get ready for a race. Now, I, I don't, I don't cut any corners, even in my, even on myself. You know, I, I'm just because I know what it takes to get through it. I've done eight full Ironman and seven half Ironman. I, I still approach it as if it's my first one. So there's like, there's no last minute cramming for the test. 
<laughs> you know, because you can't do that in Ironman. You know, if you're doing triathlon training or any type of training, whether it's half marathon, marathon, whatever, if you don't put in the work, the results are going to show on race day or the lack of the results will show on race day. So you've got to put in that work. So. What of your races, Ironman, which one would you say is your favorite? Oh, without a doubt, France. So the first time I did France, I didn't finish it. I finished the swim, was very excited. When I came out of the water, you would have thought I won the entire race. I mean, I was so excited to get out of that, out of the water. And it was, uh, it was very, very fulfilling to have gone through that entire journey. What we didn't prepare for, well, we were prepared, but what we didn't realize was that there was going to be so much climbing on the bike. I mean, there was almost 10,000 feet climbing on the bike. And so, you know, that took a significant toll on, on, on me and another one of our folks who was in our four-man group. You know, I, I remember being the last one that they let in off of the bike. Mm-hmm. Our race. You know, I got on the, on the run course and just didn't have anything left. Um, so at mile 21, I had 40 minutes to go for the cutoff. They had a 16 hour cutoff. So I had 40 minutes to go and five miles to go. So at that point, there was absolutely no way that I was running five, eight minute miles to finish. I, I probably would have tried really, really hard. It may have really hurt myself, but one of the guys in the group, he was like, now nah, let's, let's take this in and let's go get Florida. That that's what I did. So Florida 2015 was actually my first finish, but I made a vow. Mm-hmm. I was going to go back. Okay. Finish France. Okay. So uh, that's what I did in 2018. Okay. I went back and finished France, well under the cutoff time, and uh, had my fastest swim. Um, did really well on the bike. Did well on the run and uh, was really excited. Went back and got got some get back, so to speak, <laughs> at that race because I didn't didn't want to let the race define me. I wanted to go back and define it. That was very important. So the the bike I heard, I mean, it's it's hilly and it's like some some of those descents are like dangerous. Man, it's it's very dangerous. So. And it's just like you see on TV. There, there are no guardrails. I mean, you're on a path. So it's the mountain. Then, and they're not hills. It's a, it's a mountain. Mountain, a little path, and then the drop. Mm-hmm. And so there, in some stretches, there may be, um, there are no guardrails. But there may be a two-foot stone wall that runs apart across the section. That's it. And... So for the first 81 miles or so, it's some variation of elevation that you get up to 81 miles, the next 30 is down. So there's a particular part in the the climb between mile 29 and 43 that usually takes people two hours because it's up. It's up, up. <laughs> Doc, when I say it's up, I say it's up, up. I remember, I'll never forget. I was prepared the second time, but it blew me away the first time. I'm, I'm riding and I'm just going up and man, ooh, wee, legs are burning. Then you get to this false plateau, but you look up and all along the side of the mountain going up, you see these little dots. Like, man, that's a red dot. Green dot, that's a blue dot, that's a black dot, yellow dot, a white dot. You're like, man, what is that? And then you have the revelation. Oh no, those are helmets. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) I gotta go up there. (laughs) (laughs) And so you're climbing and you get to a point where you can see the entire valley, and, and I guess, I don't know, valley is probably not even the right word, but you can see for miles 
and everything, the coastline where you started looks so far off and you're, and you're so high up and you're just like, oh man. <laughs> but that climb was tough. And I remember the descent was even trickier because you have some switchbacks mm-hmm. on the descent that you have to come to a complete stop. Complete stop? Yeah, or maybe not a complete stop, but you better slow down. And then because they're hairpin, some of them are hairpin turns. So you have to stop and they have people along the way and they have signs and all that stuff. But, but guess what? They're French. Because <laughs> you're in France. And oh. <laughs> You're sitting there like, why don't you understand me? Because it's like (laughs) clicking in your head that all you know is that you're you're struggling and you're trying to express yourself. And it's like, oh, man, yeah, I am. I'm in France. Words to say and words not to say and all that stuff. And and that really is how to ask for help and and, and water, doo-doo, all that type stuff. So it was, it was, uh, it was fun, but that descent was really tricky. And I remember the first time I, I did it, I got to a point where the guy said, you have one hour from here. Mm-hmm. And, um, I looked at my watch and I knew I was facing the cutoff time. Put everything on my bike and just put my head down and, I took some risks that I probably shouldn't have taken in 2015. I, I had all the time in the world in 2018. I was I was good. So how did you prepare for the uh, that climbing, like that significant climb? I went out to the trace and I did hill VPs. We have a, a stretch of the trace from mile marker 440 to it's Garrison Creek, which is about mile marker 427. So that 13-mile stretch is really hilly had some descents. So I would just go out there and I would just do hill repeats. I'd go from 427 to 440 come back. 427 to 440 come back. And by the time I do that four times, I was done six or 7,000 feet of climbing. And so I know that's still not close to it, but and then I would pick a certain section of it and I would just do 10 hill repeats on that. And if that didn't get it, I'd go back and I'd do 20 hill repeats. I mean, I'm, I'm crazy. I did a lot of, um, saw days that you couldn't get outside. I'm indoors on the bike. At the time, I didn't have one of those smart trainers. So I'm at the gym on the bike and I would consistently be out of the saddle riding with the tension turned all the way up or as far as I could take it. Mm. I'd just do it for a certain length of time doing intervals like that and that really helped. That helped tremendously. Didn't bother your knees? No, didn't bother my knees. And I knew that I needed to, I was going to climb for a certain amount of time, uh, especially between miles 29 and 43. I knew that I was going to climb for that entire portion of the race. It would take about two hours for just those 14 miles. That's a lot of climbing. Yeah. For an hour and a half, two hours. So, what is the most important lesson that you've learned? Man, you can you can truly do. This is going to sound cliche, but you can truly do anything. Anything is possible. I mean, you can really put anything you put your mind to. You can do it as long as you have uh, a plan, right? If you have a plan, then you can do it. And even if you don't have a plan, if you just apply yourself and the plan will happen and it'll, it'll, uh, it'll all come up. And the biggest life lesson is mental toughness. I mean, you, you've done an Ironman, so you know that on race day, it's, it's like none other. So there's nothing that I can't do. There's no mental game that anybody can do to me that I haven't experienced on race day. You doubt that I could finish the race? Well, guess what? I finished the race and I figured it out. You doubt that I could win your, your case? Well, guess what? I prepared myself and I figured out how to win your case. Opposing counsel presented a really good argument in court or presented a really good brief. Well, guess what? I figured out a way to be opposing counsel. You didn't think that 
you'd be able to settle your case favorably. And guess what? You figured out a way to do it. Because, I mean, it, it really kind of spills over in all aspects of your life, that particular type of mental toughness. And is there going to be mental fatigue? Yeah, but you figure out how to get through it. You figure out how to be the best in any certain situation and really apply yourself. There's just, there's so many different challenges that are out there. And what people don't realize is the biggest limiter is you. It's not somebody else saying you can't do it. Now they may say you can't do it and that gets in your head and that plants the seed of self-doubt and then that just goes wild like a, like a bomb just went off in your head and now you can't think that, uh, you don't think that you can do it. But the biggest limiter people usually have is themselves. And if you can get beyond the mental aspect of whatever challenge you're up against, you could do it. You could do it. I mean, you went through med school. I mean, I'm sh- I, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that you had days that you were probably like, you know what? <laughs> I don't know about this med school thing. <laughs> How about I stop after these four years? You know, these. This biology and, and chemistry and all these other prerequisites I got to take. And then you went to residency and then you did your specialty. So I'm sure all along the way, but you know why you flourished? Because you had that mental game. It's, it's all about that mental toughness and that figuring out, get a, having a plan and not letting yourself be your biggest limiter because if you get in your own head, then not only do a disservice for yourself, but then you also do a, do a disservice for people that are trying to draw inspiration from you because you have an obligation to give back to the community. How do you find time to do training, coach, practice law, all your community endeavors, capital steps? <laughs> Well, some people say I don't sleep, but uh, I do sleep. With Ironman training, I don't think I really became, and I'm not the best at it, but I've become a lot better. But I learned pretty quickly with, with Ironman training that you've got to use, you've got to be very efficient with your time. You have a certain block of time that you know you need to do your day job. And of course, your day job takes, takes precedence over everything else outside of family. But if if you only have a certain amount of hours that you have to do to write a brief or to do something else, and then you know that either that morning or that evening, you've got to swim, or you've got to bike, or you've got to run, then you've got to be very disciplined about your time. In addition to all of that, you're going to have, I would have the capital steps workout. Then I've got to figure out a way to get all the stuff done during the day and then be at the steps at six mm-hmm. without fail. Not be late, be there at six and be on for the next hour, hour or 15, hour and a half. And then if I have nine times out of 10, by the time I leave the steps, I haven't done my workout for the day. So then I'll go to the Y or I'll go run or I'll go swim or whatever. So it's about being very efficient with your time. And I didn't really master that until, well, I don't master it. I'm still working on it. But it's gotten so much better because of the different things that you have to do. Then you've got to think about it. You've got to spend time with family. You've got to spend time with friends. Got to, if you're involved in a number of different organizations, you got to figure out a way to, to, to put that in your schedule. It's just, um, if it's not on my calendar, it doesn't happen. My friends are like, man, why are you send me a calendar invite to hang out? Well. <laughs> so do you take time? Do you vacation? You like to travel. I do. I do. I like to travel. One of my favorite trips was, yeah, we did a race in July and that was, that was so much fun. So. So relaxing. We made sure what I've learned about travel, what France taught me is that you put the race at the beginning of your trip. You don't put it at the end, in the middle or at the end. You put it at the beginning of your trip. So that's what we did. We put the race at the beginning of our trip. We got there on Wednesday. The race was on Friday. 
and then we have the whole next week or however many days that we have left um, to really enjoy Dubai, Abu Dhabi, and, and that part. And it was it was a phenomenal, phenomenal vacation just to be able to relax. And then all my vacations don't revolve around racing. So do you usually race with the same group of people, or do you just race on your own combination? It's a combination. So the guys, and uh, when I say the guys, I mean, Tara, Taryn, Daryl, Stephen, and I, we usually pick a race, and some variation of the four of us will do it, do that race. I've done more races with Daryl than I've done with anyone else, but um, we're all doing races. And then if my athletes are are doing a race, sometimes, not all the time, sometimes I'll do the race with them. Most of the time, I don't do it with them. I always like to, to, to be on the sideline coaching because the race is all about them, not about me. To my listeners that are interested in triathlon, running, fitness, capital steps, what can they find you during the Nashville area? I'm on Instagram at, at James Crumlin. That's at J-A-N-E-S-C-R-U-M-L-I-N. That's, that's also my Twitter name. Feel free to reach out to me on any of those platforms or you could contact me. My work email is jcrumlin at bonelaw.com or personal jcrumlin, jcrumlin junior at gmail.com. Either, any of that stuff. Feel free to reach out to me. I'd love to chat about triathlon, triathlon training, life, the mental aspect of it, or you need some legal help. <laughs> I practice business and employment law, so I'm happy to help out in that area too. Whatever works. Okay, well, thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. I hope that uh, answered all your questions. I had a blast. It was great. That wraps up this episode of Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. Thank you for tuning in. If you already haven't, please download Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast on Apple, Spotify, or however you listen to your favorite podcast. If you have any questions, concerns, or possible show topics, please email Running is Cheaper Than Therapy, OLB, Omaha Love Brown. Again, that's Running is Cheaper Than Therapy, Omaha Love Brown at gmail.com. I also can be reached via Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Handle We Life, We Love. OUI Life, OUI Love. Thank you, and please tune in again.